Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 370th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Tim Goodwin. Tim is the founder of Goodwin Investment Advisory, an RAA based in Woodstock, Georgia, that oversees $275 million in assets under management for 370 client households. What's unique about Tim, though, is how he leans into search engine optimization and Google reviews in particular, coupled with paid search ads to capture consumers actually searching for financial advisor near me. And in the process has created a robust prospecting pipeline, which generated enough demand that Tim had to triple his minimum fee requirements over the past two years. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Tim built a pipeline for growth by systematically asking for reviews online. That's resulted in almost 50% of his clients posting Google reviews. How Tim leverages those 150 plus Google reviews along with signing up for Google screens and investing in a paid search and targeted remarketing ads all to build his prospects trust and get them comfortable to reach out over the internet for a financial advisor. And how Tim has reallocated his own marketing dollars from third party lead generation platforms and instead invested more deeply into his firm's own SEO and Google results driving a 2.5x return in new onboarded client revenue for every $1 he spends on marketing. We also talk about how Tim's marketing success led to a level of growth and inflow of clients that created significant capacity constraints and why he ultimately decided to decrease the quantity of prospects and increase the quality of prospects by raising his firm's minimums and then crafted an options-focused framework to graduate clients who didn't meet the new minimums and ensure they could transition in an empowering way. How Tim navigates the sometimes contradictory pull between running a profitable firm, preventing employee burnout, and a desire to serve, including clients who may no longer meet the firm's growing minimums, and why Tim has made the health and happiness of his employees, not his clients, his priorities of founder and leader. Because as Tim highlights, a cared for and happy staff ultimately gives better client experiences anyway. And be certain to listen to the end, where Tim shares why he has found that clients who already enjoy and understand the company culture and objectives can yield great dividends as a place to find new employees. How is a 22-year-old tackling the hurdle of not just finding, but also establishing trust with older prospects, Tim was able to get over the initial painful ramp up by giving himself a two-year deadline to make the firm pay for itself. And how Tim has intentionally sought out and created two of his own mastermind groups as a way to cope with the challenge as a founder at can be lonely at the top, and it helps to have peers who understand and can empathize with the weight of being in charge and having team members rely on you for their livelihood. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Tim Goodwin. Welcome, Tim Goodwin, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I really appreciate you joining us today and the opportunity to get to talk about growing our firm with, as I kindly put it, like good old Uncle Google, <laughs> just sending us some referrals, as it were, from from search engines, right? The internet's version of referral traffic, uh, not uh, the classic advisor version of client center of influence referrals. And I find there's this phenomenon that on the one hand, a lot of firms seem to have really struggled to figure out how to grow online, grow digitally, the proverbial, like get clients to just 
find you on the internet and engage your services. I feel like it's the the digital version of 20 years ago. We used to say like, yeah, it would be really cool if clients would just make my phone ring instead of right. having the code call them. But it was just like pipe dream punchline to the joke that the client would call you or the prospect would call you and your phone would ring because the whole point was like you had to pick up the phone and call them. Uh, but as we do our advisor marketing studies from the the Kitsis platform, we've seen this trend in recent years that firms that start investing into search engine optimization and like the, the ways that you get Google to come find you actually are one of the single best financial ROIs of any marketing spend that we see. And so as a it's wow. a firm that's been putting some effort this direction of like, how do we generate some activity for, from Google? I'm just excited to talk about what you guys are doing that has actually worked. That means people find your firm on the internet and like actually have money, like our good clients <laughs> yeah. come on the internet and find you. It's amazing. Way. It's so incredible. So I think dive in. I'd love to get started by just understanding a little the context of your advisory firm in and of itself, just who you guys are and what you do, and then talking a little bit about like where growth has been coming from this year, how the digital realm is playing a role, and then I think we'll get to talk a little bit more about the history and evolution of this over time. So to kick off, just tell us, Tim, a little bit about the advisory firm. Yeah, so we're just north of Atlanta in Woodstock, Georgia. And uh, I started the firm uh, almost 20 years ago, so that's pretty incredible. We're going to hit 20 years here in a few months and have a big 1920s roaring social party, so that's exciting. We've got uh, a team of thir- or like 13 W-2s, but there's really only about nine full-time equivalents. It's pretty cool. One of the things that's unique about our firm is that a lot of my staff were clients before they were employees, so eight of the 13 were actually clients beforehand. That's been really great for us. Uh, we're currently serving about 370 households. We're at about 275 million. So, so I do my kind of rough napkin math here: 275 million, 370 cl- a client household. So, like average client is six or seven hundred thousand dollars. Yes, in investable assets. That's a good way to think about you guys. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think we're pretty pretty darn close to 700,000 right now. And it's almost all AUM fees. We do some hourly work. That's not a substantial part of the revenue. So we're right at about two and a half million this year. About two and a half million of revenue. Yes. Okay. And so then I think relative to about nine full-time equivalent employees. So your revenue per employee metrics is just over 250,000 of of revenue per employee, which just fits right in with where for advisory firms tend to be as they're growing that like 250 to 330,000 revenue per employee tends to sit pretty well once once we've got a million or a few dollars of revenue it's hard yeah to, and, hard and we worked, we've worked hard to write the ship we we had a little more staff uh, earlier this year than we have now and uh, we didn't have the assets either so the, the ratios maybe didn't look as as good before but they're starting to look better and we're that's a lot of hard work on the leadership team for sure so now that we've got context around this. I guess just can you tell us a little bit more around this like types of clientele you serve? I mean I mean we said like average client is seven hundred thousand dollars, but is this seven hundred thousand dollars of typically retirees? Is this seven hundred thousand dollars of typically like young executives at Coca-Cola? I know that's there in the area. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But what does a typical client look like for you, for your firm? 
Yeah, so we're a bit younger. That probably has to do mostly with me being younger, starting the firm at 22 years old. There's only so many people that are going to trust you to manage their IRA in, in the stock market at that point. But uh, yeah, the average age of our clients is probably closer to 50 to 53, 54. Okay. Um, so I know that's maybe roughly 10, five to 10 years, yeah. um, maybe younger than some other averages I've seen. So nominally pre-retiree folks, the within five to 10 years of retirement have accumulated some dollars and, right. and need some financial advisor help is your clientele. Yeah. Yeah. So we're looking for, like, if folks are looking to get started with us, we're communicating that we're looking for folks with a growing portfolio of 300000 or more. And uh, so we have a $1,000 quarterly minimum. So $4,000 a year. We don't love to charge that minimum very long. So if they've come in and they're <clears throat> they're essentially being applied the minimum we want to plan to get them out. So yeah, we have a lot more contributors than we have distributors. So that's a nice thing. Okay. Uh, even if we stopped Adding new clients, even without market growth, the, the current contribution rate exceeds the distribution rate. So yeah, we are certainly tilted more towards uh, pre-retirees. So out of curiosity, you said like nominally you're looking for clients with a $300,000 asset threshold, but your fee structure is $1,000, a quarter minimum fee. So I guess I'm just curious, like where did minimum fee come from as opposed to minimum assets? Yeah. And essentially when they start getting much below 300,000, that, that minimum applies. Uh, so I, we like hopefully a lot of advisors and, and RIAs were, were growing pretty substantially over the COVID-19 years. And we were adding two clients a week for about two and a half years. And it was, <clears throat> there was a much smaller minimum then, maybe a hundred thousand. And so it was last year in March where we were like, man, like, we just feel like we're a firm that's just onboarding people. And we started to feel like the client experience was being sacrificed and advisors were starting to stress out. So we actually tripled the minimum from a hundred to 300,000 last year in March, uh, just to actually intentionally slow the growth down. But I guess I'm just trying to understand like fee minimums versus asset minimums. And it's like how you set or define each, right? Is it literally like if I have a hundred grand and I think you guys are awesome, can I pay you a thousand dollars a quarter? Or do I have to come to you with $300,000 and your fee schedule just adds up such that it ends up being a thousand dollars? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great question. And we will take somebody who ends up paying a thousand dollars a quarter because there's okay. this really great company out there called advice pay that you can use. Have you familiar with that? Yeah. So I'm familiar. You're familiar with it. Yeah. So we can set them up on a fixed payment schedule and we do try to do that for our minimum clients. So they're not actually paying the fee out of the account, okay. um, but out of pocket to, so that their assets can grow faster. So like in your example, if somebody came to us with a hundred thousand, we would just want that relationship to grow pretty fast. If they weren't related to another household, like vertically, if it wasn't like the kid of a tier one, we would want that growth to be substantial. But what we're generally in encouraging them is just to meet with us hourly until their assets hit a level where they're not paying a minimum. So it's more of like, don't hire us yet for management, but we'd love to meet with you hourly. We can even tell you exactly what to buy and give you advice and without you necessarily having to pay $4,000 a year, they're going to end up paying a lot less just for the hourly coaching to get there. And then if they want to, you'll take them on board, but then you try to charge them externally just because if they really have a materially lower than $300,000 account and you've got a $1,000 minimum quarterly fee that they're otherwise willing to pay, 
it still gets to be a pretty tough drag on the investment account if they're paying for what ultimately is like a lot of non-investment financial advice that's being that's then dragging down the investment account so yeah it's like it's probably their first time hiring a professional money manager right so it's probably pretty discouraging they pull up fidelity.com they go to their performance and net of fees it's pretty dismal right so Uh and so we want them to be encouraged and and see that return without that larger fee hampering it and we want to see that account grow but i will say that right now each advisor can only sign one up to one minimum client a quarter so there, okay. there is a limit there. <laughs> so we'll take them, but we'd rather they be hourly clients. But we do make one exception per advisor per quarter. The advisors have big hearts. And as soon as they meet those people, they want to just, or at least our team, they're awesome. So they would want to really help. So, But sometimes that's when helping hurts, right? And you're adding too many clients that you're probably not super profitable on. And they're limited on the number of relationships they can have as well. So there's it's an exclusive set of seats. And our billing team will actually follow up with that advisor if that that client has paid the minimum fee for too long. So that's something and, we want to know when they're going to get out of that. And then that's built into the CRM. And if they're not, if they didn't get out of it as initially planned, then there's a conversation. So how long is quote too long? How long are you comfortable seeing that before you're coming in the say? I would want it to be two years or less. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and again, it's, that's more of a conversation than a policy, just depend on the client and what's happening or, well, you know what, they're going to, they're going to retire next year and they're going to roll over their 401k. Okay. We can wait a little bit longer, but we don't want to just keep seeing this person. And you said as well, you set a, a threshold for how many clients they can have in total. So where do you draw that line? Uh, 150. 150 clients. And that's, yeah an individual advisor on their own? Is that like an advisor team that has some support people? Yeah. So we're right in the middle of a little gray area there because <laughs> we were working on Angie Hubert's diamond model, but now we're looking at a, a little bit of a different one with some staff shifting. So we do have a full-time client service associate. Uh, we have a full-time operations manager. So there is some good support, but right now the advisor's even though we operate as a team and we meet as an advanced planning team on a regular basis, uh, the client right now is typically just meeting with one advisor. Okay. And so that one advisor is limited to 150. Uh, we call it non-related households. So like if their kids come in, that doesn't account against their 150. But we're also tracking that to make sure that's not overwhelming because they still have to get their annual meeting in, even with the kids or the grandparents or you know parents, that kind of thing. And and what's ongoing service for you in that context? Are, are you a uh, one meeting a year, multiple meetings a year, full service calendar ongoing? Uh, just where where does that scale for you guys when you're doing 150 clients per advisor? Yeah, so they <clears throat> we want them to certify at least one annual meeting a year, and then it's really up to the client after that. So a client might express, "Hey, I, I really want to meet twice a year, or maybe more." That's not typical, but most of them are one meeting a year. Some of them are twice. Uh, then it just depends too, right? On the need of the client. We're really relying on the client to, like, we're available for you and we're responsive and we're quick. But if we haven't heard from you for a while, we're going to reach out and, and get at least one annual meeting uh, checked off for the year. And you said it, you were like working towards Herber style diamond model teams. Now it sounds like you're shifting away for that or another direction. So can you talk a little bit more about what's evolving, what was working or now not working that you're finding you need to do it differently in your firm? 
Yeah, so we we actually had two advisors, associates that we were hoping would, would work into that team that left earlier this year. And when we were growing at two clients a week, so we were seeing that growth coming in for so long and at the time had a bigger team, we really saw how these diamond models could come about. But when we realized, gosh, we're growing too fast and we slowed it down and then we lost two potential team members and our ratios were also off, we were just, let's wait on this whole kind of diamond model team thing. And now we're looking at maybe more of a pair situation where, because we've got really great uh, lead advisors that really probably need some pair of planner roles. And so I think that might be a better role for the firm. So I've been <laughs> on the Kitsy's premium site, we're watching webinars, and we've been on the CFP board site looking at those career paths. And so we're just trying to gather a lot more information about what's out there and what's the best fit for the firm. So right now we're in a little bit of a, little bit of a holding period, but the, the growth is consistent. The advisors are great. They're not maxed out yet at 150. Two of them are really close. So we can still add capacity, but we're trying to get ahead of where they're going to be maxed out pretty soon. So, uh, so help me understand more just what, what was going on that, that you lost associates or that associates left. I mean, just you've, you talk about associate shifting and this, we were in this really fast growth mode and then we deliberately moved up minimums a bit and tried to slow the pace. I mean, just were those directly related? Like, we slowed the growth down and then the associates weren't as excited to be on the team anymore? Like are those- Oh yeah, well, that's connected, a, that's a good, I, good question. That's a good question. So when we looked back at like 2021, we had added a hundred clients that year to a week and we realized that half of those clients were between a hundred and 300,000. And we really felt like that in our kind of full service model, as a lot of folks have, we were not, profitable on those folks. It may not be profitable for a long time, if ever. <laughs> and that was really tying up our capacity as well. So we just were like, hey, if we just move that minimum up to 300,000, then maybe we'll just slow down to one a week and these will be better fit clients for us. So no, they, it was two advisors that had started. They both did an internship. They're just phenomenal in that internship. So we, we thought we were just going to hire one. We ended up hiring them both. And then as they were moving, they both had to get their Series 65 first and then work on their CFP. And I think while one of them was working on the CFP, she was like, I don't know <laughs> that this is the direction I want to head. So she moved more okay. into operations and client service. And then, uh, and then the other gentleman was, we were moving him more up into sales. And I think he was maybe looking for different opportunities in the career path of advisors. And our small firm just didn't seem to have what was probably the best fit for him as he was just getting out of college and kind of getting his feet wet and seeing what was out there. And I think he wanted to try out some other career paths that we just didn't have. We just didn't have the, just didn't have the capacity or the scale for yet. So I guess I understand that shift them for the, like why they were moving on. So just help me relate back in the context of diamond models. I mean, was it, we don't feel like diamond models are working for us. We need to shift or, hey, we've had some turnover and changes. So let's take a fresh look at what's going on anyways, because that's usually what we do when there's some turnover and decided like, I just don't know if these are what we need right now. Yeah, I think with our, that's a great question. So with uh, with the current growth rate and the capacity of the advisors we have, we just felt like we didn't need to go hire more advisors right now so that we could get one diamond or split two diamonds. 
uh, split one dime into two. So I think it just, okay, we're at a slower growth rate. W- one of the big shifts too that I'm leaving out that probably will help this make more sense is that we have actually started, uh, we've called it the great graduation. We have started graduating some clients to self-management that are small in nature. And so even though we would apply the new minimum to new clients, uh, we're slowly starting to apply that to those existing clients, right? That fall underneath the new minimum. So we're having conversations with them. So what that's doing is it's starting to build capacity in our advisor's books that they didn't, that they didn't have before. So, all right. So now I, I got to ask like, how does the great graduation work? <laughs> I love the, the label and framing, but yeah. you know, for so many of us, like this is, this is a really hard conversation, right? For yeah. Clients who've been with us for potentially a very long time, be going back yes. and saying, you're graduating, which is a kind way to put it. Like <laughs> Isn't it? I feel like that's the best two words we can come up it with. Is, it, is, it is about <laughs> the, the best way I feel like we can do it, but just it's a, <laughs> a hard conversation. So yeah, how are you doing this with clients? Like, How do you break the news to them and how are you actually explaining it to them? Yeah. And we can get into this more, but like you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, we're big into Google and leads and our website and reviews. And so our online reputation is very important. We don't want to break ties with a client and then have a negative experience and just like, let us have it on a one-star Google review. Right. So, so we're being very careful with our language and making sure everybody feels really well taken care of. So we, we leave the option up to the client. It's either, you know, do you want to sign the new agreement to stay a management client at a thousand a quarter? Uh, or would you like to convert to an hourly client and pay two seventy five? Or would you like to just take it over yourself, find someone else, move to a retail client? We use Fidelity. Fidelity is our preferred custodian. You could just stay a retail client at Fidelity. That that kind of thing. So we really do leave it up to the client. And so a few of them so have. So it's not we're letting you go. We can't serve you anymore. It's simply hey, we're updating our fee structure. Going forward, it is a thousand dollar per quarter minimum fee. If you don't like that, we'd happy to serve you on an hourly basis. If you don't like that either, we're happy to help you just convert yourself to a retail client at Fidelity. Your call. It's exactly what it is. And we started with a smaller group. We're having conversations with other firms this year for the next group up that is still under our minimum, but a little bit closer. And there may be some other firms that could make it keep them in management that have a different model and not as high as a minimum as we do. But essentially, they'll still have those same options. We're trying to maybe find one, one or two more. So so how did you decide who to target and roll this out to first? Because it sounds like you're doing it in waves, not just right. literally every client in the book. Yeah. The X is yeah. getting the, getting I'm the really book. great at just like bringing in the ax and just like, let's just cut all this off. But I'm learning over time that scalpel approach over time is uh, slow slow down the velocity to change for the staff. So yeah, it was just everybody under 100,000 this year. Okay. So next year we'll work on the management clients between 100 and 300,000. Now I got to imagine for clients under 100,000, like notably that's also, they're the ones with the biggest jump to get the minimums that you're talking about, right? At least if they were at Two hundred and seventy-seven thousand dollars, like the uh, the minimum. They're under three hundred, but the thousand-dollar quarter minimum fee isn't that big of a move. Clients who are under a hundred thousand dollars, like your quarterly fee, might be more than their old annual fee. It's like there's right. a more sticker shock. Yeah, I presume yeah. that comes from those. Yeah. So, so the, these next ones, 
might be a little harder. So yeah, it's just about the direction that they're headed and the value that they need. And sometimes the conversations lead to, oh yeah, I've got this you know, old employer-sponsored plan that I haven't rolled over. I've got this cash no. I want to invest. We're like, great. All right, we're good. We don't have to worry about a minimum fee. So, And some of them, uh, they appreciate it. They're like, wow, I'm going to save the fee that I'm already paying you, and then I can just pay you hourly as I need you, and they may only come in for an hour or two a year. And that's already started happening. Some of those clients that graduated, I'm doing air quotes here, that graduated earlier this year have already come back and done some hourly work with their advisor. Uh- and so how do you explain it to them? Because I'm assuming, or at least from what you're saying, it sounds like the sort of graduation style language is not literally like the words and approach you're using to explain to them what's going well, on. Well, we say graduate to self-management. The goal is really that the, and that the advisor is reaching out to the client and calling them. That's what we're trying to do, trying to call them either get them on the phone or get something scheduled to have the conversation. So after a few calls and a text message and an email, or or if they ignore us, then they, then we get, they send the email that gives them their options. And if they still don't reply back to us, then they get a termination letter from us. Okay. Yeah. So there was like 13 of them that got the 30 day notice termination letter uh, a couple weeks ago, right before December that literally just weren't calling us back, weren't texting us back and weren't emailing us back. And that's what's happening with a lot of these clients we've had for a long time. They just, they haven't really been great fits because they're just, they're, they're unresponsive clients. Right. So on the one end, it, yeah, I feel like you can rationalize like, well, they weren't very expensive to serve because we, we can't even meet with them when we're trying to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's all about the the model that you want. And I think some of my colleagues are like, what, what are you talking about? They never want to meet with you and you still get to pull a management fee. What's really your cost there? But there's a cost of time. There's a cost of liability and responsibility and experience. And uh, when something crazy happens in the stock market or the world, all the clients call that advisor at once, regardless of size. And so there's just something about we've had to learn as a staff this year, like be good to yourself. (laughs) Keep your meetings short. Let go of some of these small clients that aren't great fits. Uh, You really want clients that are going to reply to you and respond to you and, and show up for their annual meetings. And those ones that do have better experiences, they have better outcomes too. So we ultimately want them to all have better experiences and better outcomes. And we know that clients will have better experiences and outcomes if they have an annual meeting with their advisor. Or at least if they're in some way, shape or form engaged with the Just engaged. Like, please just be engaged. So yeah, sometimes I'll meet with my buddies who are clients who are like, oh yeah, I'm a great client. I'm, I'm not calling and meeting all the time. I'm like, actually, it would be better for you if you did. <laughs> at least once a year, meet with your advisor with my firm. So, so, so then I've got to ask just, overarching on this shift. I mean, I know you like to help people. I mean, I know you just part of your background and coming to the industry was very much from a a place of helping and service. So how do you get comfortable with this dynamic or even shift of we were trying to serve all these clients, which I'm sure is why you set the minimums as low as you did originally. And now coming back to saying maybe we can't. I think what I really had to wrestle with this year is I care. I mean, this is tough. This is tough to get here, but this is where I got to. I cared more about my advisor's well-being than my clients. Yeah. So like when they're, when there's no limit to the number of clients they have, there's no requirement on ex- pre-existing clients having a minimum applied. There's not really holding any advisor or client accountable to having annual meetings. It just, it seems to present chaos and a lot more stress and a lot 
and not a great experience. So eventually you get to that point where your book's getting full and you've got to move that minimum up. Otherwise you're not you're not going to scale. And also it can be frustrating for an advisor to come out of a meeting with a $100,000 client that argues with them for an hour about everything they say. They leave that meeting, they walk right into their uh, client meeting who has multiple million dollars who writes down everything they said and did everything that they said at the last from the last meeting. Uh-huh. So that can weigh on everybody as well. So I think we just realized that taking these smaller clients that are not profitable or hanging on to these ones that aren't profitable is ultimately like it's eating away at us. I call it, I called it cannibalism. I was like, you can only do so much of that. You've, we've got, we had to start shifting to having a more profitable practice. And that's one of the things that's doing it is letting go of these smaller clients. And it sounds like part of the driver in that context is when, when the business got to the point that you were multiple advisors and this wasn't just literally like, how does it impact you? How does it impact Tim? in serving Tim's clients, it was, well, now I've got this team and I want this team to be doing well. And I've got all these advisors on the team. And now I'm getting much more concerned about whether the team is burying themselves in these clients by trying to help too many. Yeah, absolutely. And and we try to really pride ourselves on having a irresistible work environment and great benefits. And we're measuring our you know, net promoter score and all that stuff with our team, our, our e net promoter score. And so uh, we use this really great tool. It's called Office Vibe. I actually heard that they were changing the name soon. So but we're constantly capturing the well-being of our team. And once we got to this point where these books were getting full and we were adding so many people per week and small clients and big clients, it was impacting those scores. And those are the things, that, those are the hard decisions that I think the leadership team uh, has made throughout the year to to let go of some of these smaller clients so we could free up the bandwidth for the team to get excited about new clients and to restore this profit and to feel like we can be very responsive to our clients. Not that we eliminate stress, but if the stress is too, if I have the right amount of stress on my <laughs> advisors and not too much, not too little, just right. And, uh, and they're able to get back to their emails in a timely fashion and their calls and their text messages, and they can do the follow-ups from their meetings like in a timely fashion, like they're happier, right? And if they're happier, then they're going to have, they're going to create a better experience for our clients. And that's, that's certainly what happened. Uh, we're somewhere around 153 five-star Google reviews. And we've been doing that for, we've been getting Google reviews for a long time. So I think that really helps in our efforts with generating clients that have just searched financial advisor near me or best advisor near me. And they see those Google reviews. And a lot of clients are not just leaving a rating, they're leaving a review. It's like a paragraph long. It's incredible. So, but I think in order for us to continue to have that great experience and that great outcome for the clients, the advisors need to not feel so overwhelmed with having too many clients. So help us understand more about where all these clients are coming. So you've talked about some pretty like eye-popping numbers, like two clients per week ongoing for years. Yeah. Uh, Those are big numbers. So help us understand now the marketing, sales, funnel, whatever it is, like where is all (laughs) this business coming from? Yeah. We want it to come from multiple places. We'd really love for it to come from four or five different sources, ultimately, with client referrals being very consistent because you're not getting referrals from your clients. You're doing something wrong. So you got to really pay attention to that. But I didn't want to just rely on client referrals for growth. And we are intentional about 
having some great COI relationships as well. There was a period of time that we were paying for leads. So we were part of Dave Ramsey's SmartVestor Pro program for six years. If I went back in time, I would do it all over again. But we actually stopped doing that earlier this year. We fired Dave Ramsey at the end of March. And just partly because of increasing our minimums, we were just getting some smaller leads there. And it's getting more competitive for lead gen online. And then we were also getting leads through Dave that we were getting through our own online marketing efforts. So I'm like, okay, now I'm paying twice for this lead. So I would say to advisors that are listening, if you don't have large minimums or you you have a smaller minimum, that might be something to look at. We also were doing smart asset and some other stuff, but we don't do those lead gen anymore because our own online efforts have are really continuing to bring us high quality leads. So like this year, we we signed 13 new clients that just found us on Google and uh, they averaged 909,000, those 13. Wow. So effectively about 12, 12 million in assets, That's right. 13 clients that just came from, they found you on Google. So what were, do you know, what, what were they looking for on Google? Yeah. That and we try to ask, so, so I Someone on our team, we call her the GI consultant. She does the intro call and that's our call to action online or anything that we're doing is scheduled an intro call. And so she will ask them how they find us because even a client referral has to do an intro call. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, they'll say Google and she'll try to ask them if they remember what they were searching for. But uh, we started doing downloadable guides this year. So we're starting to hear some feedback about, oh, I downloaded your guide or I saw an ad, but it's still mostly they're searching for financial advisor, financial planner, best financial advisor, best financial planner near me. But we're starting to try to get into some of these pain points and some of these other areas uh, that are starting to generate more leads. So we're starting to get a little more sophisticated and not just spending ad revenue with Google on their searches, but also on targeted ads and remarketing and then doing some social media ads too. So that's a lot of effort and there's some new things going on, but I think the results we've had over the past couple of years have been a result of just having a consistent blog. So we've been blogging for, I need to go back and add it up. It's probably seven or eight years. We sent two blogs a month. So not like two blogs a day, like you, Michael, but you know, it's, it's something. So well, we only put <laughs> one a day, like no one, could oh, read, one a day. Okay. No one could read two a day from us. I mean, it got to catch up one. on my unread emails. I'm like, oh, I got to read this stuff from Michael. It's so good. You can't um, read one a day from us. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, so I think those blogs have helped on the SEO, having the Google ratings has helped a lot. And now we're doing the guides and then the remarketing and the targeted ads. So. All right, so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff there. So I want to break this down and understand it a little bit further. So first, I want to come back to uh, as you said, like what are they searching for? The it sounds like the biggest is just some version of financial advisor near me, financial planner near me, best advisor near me, best planner near me, or like some right. combination of those. Right. So, so reorient us again about where exactly you are. When people are now doing like near me level searches. So I think you'd said earlier, like Atlanta metropolitan area, north of Atlanta, but reorient us a little bit further now of like, where exactly are you? What is this town neighborhood? What, how does the near me environment actually work? (laughs) We just, we just started getting some hits from like right across the Carolina line, right? Like North or South Carolina reaching out. But for the most part, we're 
we're just, you got Atlanta right there in Georgia. And then we're, our marketing efforts are pretty much just north of Atlanta all the way to the state line. So it's that kind of, or the way Georgia shaped, I don't know, it's Northwest or whatever. So, but I don't know, the top third of the state or so. And, and we can define those service areas with Google uh, as well. And also define ages and things like that. So uh, we aren't trying to pay, we're not doing a national ad campaign or anything like that. We are trying to stay focused in that North Georgia, Metro Atlanta, even in, up into the hills and the mountains as well. So, so in the context of they're searching financial advisor near me and you're trying to drive results from that. So, so what are you doing that actually drives results from it? I mean, are they finding you purely organically? Are you serving ads that are like geo targeted based on this search? Like, what are you doing that makes you appear when they're searching this way? Yeah, that's an awesome question. And I used to say I if I wanted to take over two thirds of the first page before you scroll down, because we're screened with Google. So you can be screened. That's going to come up at the very top. That's going to say screened. But then uh, a sponsored ad. So we are paying for ads. And then I want to be there organically just because our own content creation. Uh, and then a lot of times there'll be like a, a maps part of the result with Google that'll show you like local advisors or they're rated by Google rating or something like that. So we're also in the top 10 Yelp. A lot of times Yelp will pop up and some other search engines and those have changed over time. So it's just something to keep up with. I, uh, it's nerdy, but when I travel, I open, I always open an incognito window and I say best financial advisor near me. And I just look at the results that, that it's showing and see how we compare to those things. So, but uh, ultimately we're doing a, a lot of things, but it's being screened, it's paying for ads, creating that organic content, and then those reviews. So for folks who aren't familiar, like what is Google screened? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can, so it's where you are actually paying, it's called Google local services. Okay. okay. And you can basically pay Google for leads. Okay. That's, that happens for us, but it's not a huge lead source we convert, but it's a huge like authority score, I guess, is the way I look at it. Like to see at the very top that we're quote unquote screened by Google, just psychologically, like, wow, okay, they're screened. All right, look at there. Now they're paying for ads. Oh, there they are organically. Oh, they're over here on maps and they've got 150 plus Google reviews. So all those things add together with, hey, maybe please give us a chance, get to the website. And that's all we're trying to do is drive them to the website. And then once we're at the website, we're trying to get them to, to schedule a call. So, so what did you pay and what did you have to do to get Google screened in this context? You have to do a couple things. You've got to provide your insurance policies. And so we have to do that like every year. So they're going to, they're going to do a pretty thorough screening. It's the most thorough screening I've ever had compared to any other lead uh, generation <laughs> that I've paid for in the past. By far, Google screening uh, took way more time and they asked for way more stuff. Interesting. So, so once, oh, my, once you're screened, you're screened. My and then, pro-consumerism is actually very happy to hear that. I know. I think so too. I, I was, yeah, I expected there to be more with Dave Ramsey and Smart Asset and some of these others that they really vetted you, but I don't know. They didn't vet no, you as... It yeah. turns out Google is the one. Google's the master vetter. So, and again, I'm sure that's not perfect and... Right. Maybe we would think there there should be more that they're looking under the hood. Uh, but that's one aspect of it. And then you're able to control the budget with them too. So we actually keep a pretty limited budget there just because it's not a great conversion lead source for us, but it is nice to have that screened. Yeah, and when you talk optics. about a limited budget there, like what kind of numbers are we talking about? I mean, I don't know if that's like 
only $50 a month or only... Uh, uh, it's like probably $850 a month, I think, is like the minimum you can set. And I think that's what we have set. $850 a month. So about ten grand a year. Yeah. Okay. So then... And that keeps you with your screened badge and, and yeah. the result. So then you said you also sponsor ads. So then what are the Google ads? Yeah, so it's three parts. It's search ads, it's targeted ads, and it's remarketing ads. Okay. So can you talk us a little bit through what you're doing in each here? Yeah. So the the search ads are probably what you're familiar with. Like you're picking an ad word, like best financial advisor near me, or maybe you're picking a, a competitor <laughs> and you yep. want, if somebody searches that competitor, you want to show up as a sponsored ad, or maybe you're trying to solve a pain point, but they're searching, uh, can I retire? Will my 401k recover? Maybe you're paying for those AdWords. So that's part of that search ad. The targeted ads are you're targeting somebody who buys a specific perfume or is a golfer or buys a certain product or follows this particular influencer or something. Uh, the remarketing is that whole like accept cookies, blah, blah, blah. You go to the website and they're on your website in the afternoon. They're pulling up Facebook that evening and then you have an, you see an ad for Goodwin Investment right. Advisory on your feed. And you pull up yep. Instagram and it's over there too. So that doesn't last too long, but it's like, hey, you were thinking about us. Like keep thinking about us again because the research says they've got to see you like six or seven times before they might actually engage and share their information with you. Yeah. So, so. so what kinds of ads are you running in each? What kinds of search ads are you going after that's working or I guess that didn't work in Crashed and Burn? So like what kinds of targeted ads? Is there a magic perfume? God, oh. they've been incredible. And I work with a lot of advisors, um, but I also had two, two internal marketing folks. So there's a partnership there where they handle their campaigns on Google and Bing. And then we handle the campaigns on social media right now. So Right now, there's some of the AdWords, and we're always looking at the SEO with Evanced on certain phrases and words and like where the traffic's coming from, how long they're on the website, whether they came there organically on their own or whether it was a paid-for lead. Uh, and then so we're adjusting those AdWord campaigns. And then I, I mentioned before, we're starting to write a lot more guides. So we have 12 guides now, and so we will we'll actually advertise those guides. So like we have a guide for what do I do? with an inheritance. And that's a pretty, pretty popular guide. So if anybody's searching about that, our search guide will show that ad. And if they want that ad, they decide to give us some information that subscribes them to the blog, we start dripping on them. And it, a lot of times our consultant will reach out to them and say, hey, did you get the guide? Did you have any questions? Was it helpful? And see if they would like to schedule an intro call. But if not, we're just dripping on them on our blog over time. So... I guess I'm just trying to visualize what's working for you between, as you're framing now, like search ads, targeted ads, remarketing ads, like are some of these channels working better for you than others in, in terms of what actually drives results? So the, the search ads is what's worth like having a beautiful, fast website and Google reviews. I mean, Google reviews is really all you need to convert business. You don't even need the website because essentially, I mean, you should have the website, but if somebody just didn't have a website, but they claim their Google listing and clients started leaving Google reviews for them, like you'd convert business. That would be enough. But obviously having that website is a big deal. So most of the time when we're talking to someone and we say, how'd you find us? And they say, Google 
they basically convey that they're giving us a chance because of our reviews and our website. Okay. So, so then talk to us more about the reviews. The SEC marketing role keeps changing. I've generally tried to keep up with that. And we are independent RAA. Uh, so there's different regulations there versus yep. maybe some folks that are listening, be like, that's great, Tim, but we can't do that. I'm sorry. But yeah, at, at the end of any meeting, we ask for, hey, there's other folks trying to find us like like you did. And if you don't mind, would you mind leaving a review on Google? So we, we try to be able to show uh, an SEC examiner that we ask everybody. We don't cherry pick who we ask. We can't control what reviews are displayed or not. Right. So uh, and then we always try to reply to all those reviews as well. Sometimes we even reply with SEO words in our reply. <laughs> I don't know if that works or not, but <laughs> I'm just like, I'll give it a shot. So that's that's just been part of the culture. We do some competitions and incentivize the staff sometimes. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's been really important to us because we continue to, ha it's continued to be expressed that uh, folks are at least and giving us a chance because of those Google reviews on the website. They might get to the website because they downloaded a guide or a search engine or an ad, but to give us a chance is a big deal. So that whole schedule and intro call generally comes about because they've read some reviews and they've gone through the website a good bit. So your ask process is help me a little understand a little more how it works. Like it's a verbal ask. It's every client meeting. There's more success if you ask verbally, but part of our workflow, like we do everything with Calendly and we have a workflow on Calendly. And so their follow-up email says, hey, hope the meeting went great. If you got any feedback, let us know. And if you've got a little extra time and you wouldn't mind express leaving us a Google review, here's the link. So, okay. Yeah. And that's how you can validate to the SEC. Like, look, it's literally in our workflow for every client. We yes. meet with all our clients at least once yes. a year, which means all of our clients are getting this but at least once a year or so, like exactly again, the whole and we, 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 we're not cherry picking. That's right. And we'll put it in our insider, our, that's what we call our monthly newsletter every once in a while. So that goes to everybody. Right. So I think there's a couple of places that we could show, like we don't cherry pick who we ask. Everybody gets asked. Okay. And there's not a, like once they've left a review, you like market in your system to stop asking like it's just we do we do market in the crm <laughs> okay. um, just so we're not verbally asking <laughs> we're okay if the right. system automates it after their annual meeting once a year but no we do we do keep track of it okay yeah so you so you don't totally subtract them out of the sequence but at least you don't like keep asking them in review meetings like by the way yeah uh, we'd love it if you give a review they're like oh I man I did last year. Yeah. And we're, I mean, it was good. <laughs> yeah. Like, can you update it? We'd like a better one. Like, I don't, you know, can you add these SEO words? No, we don't do those things, yeah. but we tend to ask for reviews more than we ask for client referrals. And maybe that's, maybe that's not a best oh, practice, but it's, yeah, we, we're like, Hey, if your outcomes are great and you feel compelled to refer us, great. Or we do try to make it easy. Hey, send them this email or send them this guide. Uh, we just rolled out, uh, the nickname is, well, we call it the free second opinion retirement plan assessment. And so it's a FASORPA is the acronym. <laughs> so that's, that's what we, that's what we call it. It's a little rough for an acronym, <laughs> I have to admit. Like the flinch to fur and cloudy with a chance to meatballs. Yeah, so yes. it's the FASORPA. Yeah, so that's something like, hey, clients, you, if you've got a family member or friend or coworker, you could send them this opportunity to do this assessment with us for free. So, But we and aren't very direct clients. with client referrals. Clients can pass that along to others. That's the idea of it. That's right. That's right. Just trying to make it easy 
uh, for them to refer. I was listening to one of your podcasts on a run yeah. earlier uh, this year, and, and she was saying, like, they don't know what the next step is. Tell them the next step. Hey, like, here's how. We would love for you to refer us. Here's how. But we're not usually directly asking for that. But I, I feel like we're generally asking more for a Google review than a client referral. But we're trying to get better at asking for client referrals. So now I'm stuck on Fasorpa. So how do you, <laughs> so how, like, what's the actual, like, ask or flow? Like, I'm just trying to visualize, like, you, you send them a document and say, please forward this to people who are interested. You, like, send them a URL and say, if you know anyone who want a second opinion review, click here and they can engage with us. Like, what's the actual mechanic so what that the, you're using? What the clients are getting is an image of the team. And an explanation of FASORPA, without saying FASORPA, a free second opinion retirement plan assessment uh, with a QR code that they can scan to get started. Okay. And so in theory, they're they're forwarding this right. email. Like, is it literally in the email or in a, like an it's, attachment? Yeah, it's in the email. and uh, okay. But we have print versions too. Some of our COIs use those with their okay. clients as a way to, a non-threatening way to introduce introduce them to us. Uh, so that's physical. And so they'll the scan that that QR code that will take them to the website to schedule an intro call. And when they use that link, then our GI consultant will know, oh, this isn't just a general intro call that came from a different source. Like they actually want the FASORPA. <laughs> so, so we designed this assessment. She will actually ask them the questions over the phone. They will get an email of the answer and then they will get get a call scheduled with a, one of our CFP advisors who will go over it with them. We'll try to give them some top three priorities in a follow-up email and there's a good fit and there's some good value alignment and the timing's good. Maybe they're interested in our services, but if not, at least they walked away with a good experience and probably some things to think about work on. And so Google reviews overall. So I'm just trying to visualize, you said earlier you're at about 370 households, 150 plus Google reviews. So it sounds like something in the neighborhood of like 40 to 50% of clients may leave reviews if you're asking systematically enough, ongoing enough. And I'm sure there's a few of like, yeah, people I've have never like even done that math before, but on. yeah, that's incredible. That's right. Yeah, it's pretty accurate. So I'm just trying to visualize like, what is your spend overall on all the different Google things? I mean, so you've got Google screened, you've got the various types of ads. I'm presuming there's also something you have to spend on Evanced to manage the ads for you if they're a typical agency model. So Right. Right. Yeah. So we have like a monthly we have, we have a monthly nut with Evance that covers so much campaigns. And then when we go above that, yeah, there's a percentage. So and again, like it all depends on the practice and how big the practice is. But right now we're spending seventy five dollars a day with Google and Bing. So okay. that's about $2,300 or something like that. Yeah. So $2,300 a month. You're like, you're a little shy of 30 grand a year. Right. Right. And then there's a nominal fee there that Evance is paying for what they're managing above, above that amount. We're spending, I'd mentioned before about, what did I say? Eight, 800 I actually pulled up the number. It's 874 on Google local services. And then we spend about 40 bucks a day on social media ads. So it comes out to, I don't know, 40, 46, 4,700 a month. So just shy of 5,000 a month right now. Okay. So, uh, okay. 
which puts you at about 50, 60 grand a year on, uh, on all the different advertising. Activity. Right. Right. And your track back to that at the end of the day is 12, 12 million in assets that you're, that you're tracking back to this, or is there yeah. even other dollars? I don't know if the 12 million was like just good, like local Google search or all the different like Google Bing social media ad system in the aggregate for yeah, and, it, and it's hard, right? Cause the marketing gurus are like gurus are like, well, 50% of my marketing budget works, but I don't know what 50% it is. It's really hard for me to know like, well, which ad did you click on or which, uh, what exactly drove you here or what ultimately helped you decide to do it? It's, it's the culmination of a lot of things. Right. So, but yeah, for that, what did we look at before was the total for the year about 12 million yeah. and our effective rate is about 1.1%. So Okay. So, so yeah, so it's paying for itself. Yeah. So I, I mean, if you're at uh, if you're at twelve million in assets that's coming in, you're doing you said one point one average fee yield on that. So you're like one hundred and thirty thousand in change of right. revenue, right? For fifty right. or sixty thousand. And we've been ramping and up. So I don't think like, we we didn't spend that much on ads this year. We spent less than that. So we've been continuing to ramp it up. Oh, that's. That might be your run rate now might be five k a month, but it wasn't five k a month at the beginning of the year. It's no, it's probably picking, closer to two or three average monthly this past year. So you're picking up just because it's working. Working, right? I mean, like I fifty k spend for one hundred thirty thousand dollars of revenue is a pretty good ROI itself. Never mind right. like annually recurring revenue. Right, right. The <laughs> lifetime value of the client, right, uh-huh. is pretty pretty substantial. So, uh-huh. and, and the, the good thing with, I mean, like. When you stop the lead gen on Dave or Smart Asset or whatever, like that just stops. It's over, right? Like I can stop my ad spend, but I still have my website. I still have the Google reviews. I still have the SEO from the blogs, right? So that that part just seems like a really good investment to me because you're just building, building, right? That blog that we wrote five years ago is still on our website and it still has an SEO value that makes our website more searchable. So now help us understand though, and I know, well, this is hard per all the comments around the difficulties of tracking marketing spend exactly. But if you're doing all this blog content and the rest as well, like how are you evaluating the value of making the blog content versus the value of just doing the Google reviews versus the value of just leaning into the ads that are converting? Because usually at least you can measure those pretty directly. Google's pretty good at giving you that data because they want you yeah. to money. So how do you think about like doing a whole bunch of these different prongs versus this one's working. We clearly have the metrics that this one's working. Let's lean in on this one that's working. Yeah, we're getting better on that, Michael. So I think we'll have more since we've got multiple things going and we can track those better. Up to this point, we were leaning more on search ads, just starting to do remarketing, just starting to do targeted ads, and really just starting to advertise guides. So those are the newer areas for us. Uh, Having a really great website, whether you're releasing a blog every week or day or month, just having that good website that's fast and clean, and it's easy to understand. Obviously, our clientele is a bit older. Go for a larger font size. (laughs) They're going to go to the About Us page second. And then they're going to try to figure out how to work with you, make have a really clear call to action. So just 
those are some of the critical components of having a good website. And then in addition to that, just be aware of your Google listing and claim it. And just think about how we make decisions. We get online, we search, we read reviews. That's how folks are making decisions, even when they're spending a lot of money hiring a professional services company. So just having those two things works. That blog we write, like I said, it's going to be on the website forever. I always want to be doing that, building that organic search. Because if we turn off the ads, and drop this $5,000, almost $5,000 spend a month we have, we still have the website. We still have all the blogs and the content we created that will still keep generating leads for us. So I've got a friend whose kids are famous YouTubers. And he said, if we stop making content, we would still be able to make XYZ, a substantial amount of income because of all the content we've already made. Yeah, people going to keep People yep. keep coming to those YouTube videos for a long time before right. they drop off the, the right, options. right, exactly. So, but Google, we all know Google is really smart. I mean, if somebody throws up a website as good as mine, but they did it overnight or in a week, Google still knows that my website's been there for you know decades and been building over time. If somebody goes and gets 150 Google reviews in one day, Google knows that I've still built that over years. So, it's hard to trick Google, and, uh, and that's why we've not really adopted the whole use AI to generate content. We use AI in different ways to in our practice, but not to generate content. We still keep that original and organic. So so what was driving all the growth two and three years ago when you said you were getting the like two two clients per week flow for a long time? Was it the early nascent versions of the same thing or was there something different going on for you? No, nah, we still, I've got the numbers right here. We signed 15 clients from Google last year. We signed 17 the year before that. We didn't have the minimum, so they were smaller. <laughs> so we were getting more. <laughs> but outside of that, it was, we were getting, we were converting a lot through Dave Ramsey there for a couple of years, a few from Smart Asset. But yeah, Dave Ramsey was pretty substantial for us. We started in so 2017, I think, when he rebranded from an endorsed local provider, and we, we don't sell mutual funds, we're not brokers, so we couldn't be a part of that ELP program. Right. So when he rebranded as SmartVestor Pro, and we could be a part of that, we were on that. We started being a part and, and being considered a SmartVestor Pro within a few months of that launch. And so, so yeah, so that that's that that doubled our growth for okay. about so that- four or five years. So that was actually the volume growth for you with the caveat that the volume tended to be smaller average clients than where you're trying to focus now. Exactly. And that's why I said, if I went back in a time machine, I would still do it over again. Uh, we found, we provide a lot of growth. We found some really, really great clients. Uh, but yeah, now over time, it's like, well, it, it seemed easier to convert the smaller ones. The cost was going up. They and had more competition. And, and what our, were- what was your cost in that program? Do you recall? Yeah. So I was saying, yeah. So last year we spent 60 grand with them. Okay. In 22. Okay. So, and so this like ramp up of the Google spend, this isn't actually even calling like, It's not new dollars for you on client acquisition, right. different dollars for you for which you're getting relative right. to where you were. Fewer clients, but higher dollar clients because i'm going to presume when you were at two or three a week and getting a hundred a year but you were getting a lot of clients that were one to three hundred thousand dollars like you may have still been getting 10 million dollars of flows from ramsey for 60 grand where now you're getting 12 million dollars of flows from google for 60 grand 
Right. The difference is now you're getting it if with 12 larger clients instead of 50 to 100 really small ones. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. You're right. So there's really been the shift of maybe outgrowing away some of the other lead gen that we had. And, and maybe some folks can still convert that and that works for them. But And I think if we didn't have the marketing arm and the, and the partner that we have and the results that we were having, and I was like, I, I think I'd rather just stay in control of these leads and not have, not have to worry about my territory is getting more expensive or now they're adding more advisors or there's a lot of competition for lead gen out there. And it's gotten a lot noisier there uh, as far as lots of lead gen options that on all these, they're trying to get all of these folks searching and they just want that local person who's the real website, who's got the real reviews and they just want to get right to it and get it done. So that seemed to be just a natural shift for us. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to, Presume as well, then, if you had this much sort of client flow and growth over the past couple of years, that a lot of the staff headcount has really grown over the past few years as these marketing channels picked up for you. Is that a fair reflection? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it was really like maybe 2010 before I started thinking about hiring a team and growing uh, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, so the team has certainly grown over time. I think we, like you were talking about with the ratios at the beginning, I think we're <clears throat> the ratios look pretty good now. So we're just look try to fill the capacity and fit the right size clients in and maybe continue to graduate some of the smaller ones and see if we can get that profit margin to our goals. But we would love to get back to hiring more for sure. So so now talk to us a little bit more about about hiring. You you had mentioned earlier that a significant number of your team members <laughs> are former clients who right. got hired. So yeah. they just tell me more about this. I mean, I'm wondering everything from like, how do you broach that conversation? And <laughs> is that weird? <laughs> to, uh, uh, just how that works. And yeah. So I you know, worked out of my house. I, when I started the company, I was 22, very soon turned 23, but worked out of my house for about three years. And then I moved to one of those shared office locations and I was <clears throat> starting to get to the point where I needed help. I was talking to a client. She was like, yeah, I'm looking for some extra work. I'm going to go to Home Depot and they're going to, I was like, how much is Home Depot going to pay you? We're in Atlanta. So a lot of Home Depots around here. Right. And they were like, she was like nine bucks an hour. I'm like, dang, would, would you come work for me for that? <laughs> so that she said, yes, that was my hiring process back there. Yeah, it was very limited. And unfortunately that relationship did not work out really well. She's just a contractor there. And I had a fire her. I had to let her go. And that was not a great experience. And I definitely empathize for anybody listening that's had to fire anybody. I, I related to having to, to decide to put my dog down. It was just like, it was so bad. And so I really committed to so developing. What, what's that? What happens with the first hire? <laughs> like what was the miss or what wasn't working that you had to get to the point of actually firing her after? I think when I really started learning more about these assessments and people's unique abilities and things like that, I realized that I had hired her for exactly the opposite of her role. Uh, like the role I had was very opposite to her internal wirings. And so she actually is a professional organizer. So she brings order out of chaos. And I had hired her like any good entrepreneur to start ha helping with the books which there was no chaos there. Like it didn't need to be simplified. Actually, you needed actually, you need to be more detail oriented. You get this number, you say, well, where's the receipt? And what category does that go to? And is there a class that's assigned and et cetera, et cetera, right? And her natural instincts were to simplify it. And so they just, and it seemed to really drain her to do it. So it would take her two to three times as long as it 
as it did for the person that eventually took over those roles. So, Interesting. And I so just didn't have the like scale. She, she yeah. was very organized yes. because she was a professional organizer, but right. the key is that's because she likes diving in the chaos and making it organized. Once right. it is organized, is like your books is not actually fun and enjoyable anymore. No. Now it's just boring. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So, and I, and then I just was like, I've got to, I don't want to have this experience again. I need to better understand the role I have and make sure I find the best candidate to fit that role. And so, I, I mean, been a big fan of Dave Ramsey. His program personally helped me and my wife get out of debt many years ago. So we, I was like, well, how does Dave do it? And then I've been involved in strategic coach. Uh, how does strategic coach hire people? And so I learned their hiring processes and then just made my own. And for a little while there, I called it the uh, 12-step fireproof hiring method. <laughs> 12-step fireproof hiring method. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so what's about the 12-step <laughs> fireproof hiring? No, that... Does it have an act for I know. There's not like a Fasorpa thing. Just oh. uh, that's, uh, the fireproof hiring method. Like, well, that, that's a big... That's a big claim, but, uh, and now it's all built into, we use, was it Bamboo HR? Have you heard of that before? Yeah. Yeah. They're great. My, my HR person loves them. So, so a lot of it's built into steps there now, but it was steps like assessing your needs, to defining the key results, announcing the job offering. I always think that it's really powerful to use some kind of assessment as part of the hiring process. We use the Colby because as I mentioned before, I, I was involved in strategic coach and that's one they like. I actually don't think it matters as much which assessment you use. I just think it's important to have one that you feel like is one you understand and is helpful. I had different questions about their cover letter and their resume and and, but I did adopt that thing from Dave Ramsey where he, and I obviously can't do this now with a scale, but I think initially him and his wife would do a spousal interview. They would take their, that best candidate before they offered them the job out to dinner with their spouse. So I started doing that and that was really insightful to get my wife involved in the hiring. So bring the candidate out with you and your spouse. Yeah. So then yeah, and I'm, I'm bringing my spouse. If they have a spouse or significant okay. other, they're, they're bringing that person. So it's a double date. How to? So, do you still do this in virtual world now, or are you only hiring locally? We're pretty much only hiring locally. We've got a beautiful office building, so we've got a little bit of a different strategy there. I know a lot of folks go national or do virtual, but we're old school where we've got an office. Folks can work remotely on Fridays, but for the most part, they work out of the office for the bigger part of the week. So, yeah, so we are hiring locally. So, we generally are doing that spousal interview in person. Okay. And so what do you find just is working the most to actually figure out who's a good fit or who's not a good fit? I mean, are there? I actually love the spousal dinner interview because you get them out of the normal, like people start getting really good at what to say on a cover letter or an application or an interview. Yeah. You know, so just to get them out of that normal mode, like, let's just go out to dinner, they, they're often bringing their spouse and you know, I'm bringing my spouse. I'm seeing how they treat each other. I'm seeing how they treat the servers. I'm seeing how they order. I'm seeing how they treat my wife. So it's been interesting. M most of the time it's been really successful and built on our hopes and what we thought of the candidate. And there was one time where it was completely different. So now how does this work that you said, like the majority of the team came from clients? So is this conscious that you ask clients do you go after particular clients is like <laughs> you're like 
email announcing it to clients <laughs> was a push? Like, just how do you end out with the majority of your team yeah. former clients? Like, I get, oh, yeah, this one time we had this cool scenario where we hired a position and it turned out a former client took it. That's really different than the majority of our team. <laughs> Yeah, um, or, yeah. So it's our clients. Yeah, including me. There's thirteen W two. So take me out. There's twelve, and eight of those twelve were clients before they were employees. So that is that's pretty substantial. <laughs> I'll tell you. One case was one of my clients, and she was just referring me just tons of business, and I was converting this business. She just kept referring, and I was talking to her, and she was working for a bank, so she's already financially inclined, and she had had a really frustrating day at the bank and said she was thinking about quitting, and I was like, well, go for it. Why don't you come work for me? You already do. You just don't get paid yet. So that that kind of worked out. I ended up she, – she just recently retired, but she was uh, in a very successful advisor for me for years. In another case, one of my clients was in the financial uh, – he was doing mortgages, and after 08, that, that became a real struggle. And this particular client had asked me really great questions about my business model. He was a really great client. And I was like, what do you think about being a financial advisor? And he was like, my degree was in finance. And yeah, I think I gave it a shot. And, uh, and Joe's been with me for 12 years. <laughs> and he's one of our senior <laughs> wealth advisors. So uh, the most recent hire, uh, Kimberly, she... She actually, we didn't send an email out to the staff, to the clients and said, we're hiring. Do any of you want the job? Uh, but we did post it on our social media sites. And she saw it on Instagram the day after her annual meeting with Joe, actually, and said, hey, I actually used to be a client service associate. And then I came home to raise kids and now they're older and I was starting to look for a new job. We're like, no way. That's crazy. She just started working for us a couple months ago. Well, I, so I guess I feel like you're framing very... Uh, like I would say like normal, straightforward examples. Okay. I get it. It all makes sense. Yet most of us don't have that many (laughs) team members who are former clients. What are you doing differently from what the rest of us do that you're ending up with such a different outcome? I guess I really don't know. (laughs) Other than I just keep it in mind. Like if I meet with a client. I'm like, I wonder if they would be good at this role. And if I ever had that need in the future, I'm going to remember that. I'm going to, and I'll make a note of that. And so do you ever worry about the dynamic of they're a client? If this doesn't work out, I lose a team member and a client. Is there like a yeah. awkward line being crossed when you invite them to, to, <laughs> to well, do this? What? Like, are there social... <laughs> dynamics when you open this conversation up what we just did here recently was allowed all of those to like i'm not the financial advisor for any employee anymore okay but i don't know i just think it's worked out really well for me they're phenomenal team members they understood the business they were already eating it so why not start selling what they eat eat what you sell right so it's like they they're already fans because they're already clients they're already paying you so to come to work yeah. and be a part of that, and we do events and we like to have fun. So some of those clients will get to know other team members from other events we have and they're like, hey, maybe I could work with these people. So that's the other thing, I guess, that I'm probably not super mm. conscious about. But now that I think about it, there's a value alignment and I'm like, oh, you know, that I think those folks might really work well within the culture that we already have. And I think it's an interesting point. You do some client events. They've already met the team. They know who they might be working with. So it's it connects for them. 
Yeah, absolutely. So as you reflect back on this journey, what surprised you the most about building your own advisory business? I guess what surprised me the most is how much I have enjoyed building a team and and a culture and a place to work. My, my personal mission is to create careers people love. And so if I can create a really great job for my team member and they are the best version of themselves in that job, then, then that experience uh, for the client that they interact with and any different thing, whether it's you know, uh, marketing related or CSA related or advisor related is hopefully a really great experience. So yeah, I don't think when I started, really it was a couple of years of just working by myself and you know, I asked my wife and I was Maureen, I was like, Hey, if like I can start outsourcing and contracting, or do you think I should actually try to hire employees? She said, I think you might be a good boss. I think you'd be a good boss. I think you should give it a shot. I was like, so, and that's hard because you build that because you're, you've got all the clients and you're building that. And then you start trying to be a good manager and a good leader and cast vision and be a good boss and create culture. <laughs> so it ends up, like you said, it gets crowded. There's a lot of hats. Uh, so it's nice that I've been able to transition off a good bit of my clients and start to lean more towards kind of the CEO and more of the leader role. But uh, I think that's probably one of the bigger things that's that surprised me is just enjoying that aspect of the job. And I know a lot of advisors don't, and I get that. <laughs> and they're like, we're going we're gonna to sell, or we're going to bring in a partner to handle that because they don't love the one-on-ones and the compensation and conversations and all those things. But I've really enjoyed the challenge of it. So when did you start shifting your client load in this context? It's probably been about three years now, just three years ago. Okay. Yeah. So I still have clients, but was able to shift the majority to... Joe and Justin, some great advisors we have, and they're doing a phenomenal job. And now I haven't signed, I haven't done an engagement meeting, I think in like a year and a half. So, Was there a threshold or a moment of, I think this is the time I need to stop taking them and start moving them off? Yeah. Yeah. And it was getting back to trying to figure out how we were going to build teams and that conversation we had before. So as we were putting that team together, I could unload that to my team members and then I could start to shift some of my focus on leading and growing the company, business development, marketing, took back over the compliance role for a little while. So what was the low point on this journey for you? There's a couple of them. I mean, as we've talked about, it's uh it's hard when you're really young, 22, 23, to try to convince people to <laughs> sign a client advisor agreement and let you manage their retirement assets that they've worked hard for in the stock market. So, so that, that can be really tough, but I'm just grateful. I just Some clients I've had since the very beginning, and that's just super grateful for that. That's incredible. So, And I also think, I don't really know who coined this, but I don't know if it's John Maxwell, but it's lonely at the top when you're, especially during COVID-19. When at least for a little while there before the market turned around, the concern for the well-being of your staff, the well-being of your clients, and being that kind of founder who is also in charge and leading the firm, there's a lot there's a lot of weight there. And I think all the team members have a weight, but I think that the founder has the weight. Uh, and um, that's something that's hard to share unless you have other partners. And we're starting to do that. I've got a succession plan where the employees are buying stock from me over time. And so that's hoping to maybe share some of that weight, but ultimately it being my company and me found, found, founding it and, and being the majority owner, there's, there's certainly a substantial weight there. So 
what were you doing in the early years to actually survive and get through when you're trying to get people to sign retirement assets at, with you and you're 23 years old? I mowed lawns and cleaned pools on the so nights and there, weekends. Was there a lot of side hustles? And just <laughs> a lot of side hustles. Yeah. Well, it was like wore, wore a suit for a couple hours and then switched out to outdoor landscaping or mowing or whatever. So doing so, that. And then there's only so many people you could call and there's only so many clients I had starting at zero. Uh, it's my dad and a college buddy that were the first clients. I think I started with $105,000. So, yeah. But really, I think what helped me through all of that was just to really lean on mentors and just to to value being intentional to surround myself with people who like I wanted to be like, who I aspired to be like, uh, who were maybe already successful in the field that I wanted to go into. And so I've continued to do that and be very intentional about meeting mentors. And then, and then as you are in the industry and you meet other advisors, uh, forming little mastermind think tank groups has been great. And I've got two of those going and that's been very valuable. Something I highly encourage my advisors as well to do is as you meet other advisors, say, hey, let's get together once a month for a call and just connect and share. So that's been very helpful. So how long were you doing lawns and pools on the side? Like how long did that go before you got- I'm still doing it, Michael. I'm still mowing lawns, still cleaning pools. Now, I was like, uh, maybe a year or two. Yeah, no more than two years. That was my whole plan was I've got to get this thing to pay for itself inside of two years or I'm- Shutting down, selling my house and going into ministry full-time or something. I don't know. I was going to pursue something else. So so what else do you know now you wish you could go back and tell like early you in the first five years? I think goal setting has been really critical. Uh, so sometimes you're just in the hustle of nose to the grindstone and you're not looking up. And so I, I think it took me a while to start working on the business instead of in the business, right? So just that importance of strategic planning, uh, setting goals. I, I obviously have had the mentor thing for a long time, but getting them to speak into that plan. So definitely been on that kind of strategic and intentional written goals and plan path for a while now. But for the first couple of years, it took me a little while to figure out how important it was to work on the business and not just in the business. Yeah, so I guess I probably started there. How did you get started in that direction i mean was there a i read a book i took a program like just i find for some people there's some sort of trigger right event right. or like experience yeah. they have that starts it starts them down that road right right and i've always been growth oriented so i love reading books and listening to podcasts but it actually was really getting into strategic coach that i mentioned earlier and i know some of your yeah. Guess I've yeah. mentioned that and you're familiar with Dan Sullivan, a strategic coach. So that really forced me to have time away to actually go to that quarterly and, and sit down and plan. And that was really powerful. So when, at what stage did you start strategic coach? Uh, in, in 2010, when, when I had $10 million under management, that's when I started in strategic coach. And that was the whole business. So roughly a hundred something thousand dollars of revenue at that point. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So I'm just, okay. So I'm just visualizing. Like I was, I guess I, I lowered my fee. I think I started, it was a fixed one and a half percent for those first couple of years. I think maybe it was technically okay. under 50 grand, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, well, we years, had, yeah. we usually had a little bit higher fee schedules on the low end back then than a lot of us do now. So, right. okay. And I think, I guess that's worth reflecting as well. So just, you started, 
you started in 2004 because you're coming up on 20 years. So that's right. It was six years to get to 10 million. Yeah. So that's maybe that's one of the other low parts is that now in a quarter, the assets uh, are like firm changes more than I'd, I had been able to get on my own in the first six years. Yeah. It's a humbling thing when you put it in that context. So yeah. your, your quarter is now better than the first six years. <laughs> yeah. When you put that in perspective, that's true. And so, and I was like super pumped to sign anybody one client a month. And as I shared until we were increased the minimum, we were signing two clients a week. That just blew my mind. So it's incredible how the numbers really compound. So what advice would you give younger, newer advisors coming in and getting started today? So a bit of that uh, advice and what's helped me out is just finding those mentors early on, finding those folks that are where you want to be and being intentional about meeting with them and expressing gratitude to them. I think that's super duper important. Uh, what I would tell to younger advisors is that this industry is incredible. It can be very meaningful. There's a lot of different ways to do it, uh, but we need more good people. So I'd be very, very excited. I was excited to hear that more and more people are taking the CFP exam than ever before. We're getting more and more of a diverse group, more and more younger group. And I'm very excited about that because we need, I think we need all the good people we can get in this industry. There's a big need out there. So how do you, did you have a tactic for just how you find them and reach out to them and actually connect with them? I was really fortunate. My dad had connected me with, when I started with um, a friend of his who had actually started an RIA and already sold it and was a professor, Marcus Ingram at a local, at the local university. So, so he was my initial mentor. And then I've just met other mentors really for me through involvement in my church, other business mentors that I admired their marriage and their relationship with their kids and they had successful businesses. And so I was like, that's what I want to do. So can I buy you lunch every once in a while? <laughs> we can hang out. <laughs> so yeah. And, and maybe it's going to other professional networking events or conferences. And so I've met other advisors who I really admire. And in that case, I just added them to like a mastermind group or a monthly think tank. So I think both of those have been good sources. As we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And, and even just one of the themes that comes up is that word success means very different things to different people. And so as you're on this wonderful track of growth with the business, as you said, you're now like growing more in a quarter than you did in the first six <laughs> years cumulatively. So the, the business is in a wonderful success place and the metrics are going well. How do you define success for yourself at this point? I think it's looking back on how I viewed the mentors that I wanted to work with. Like to me, it's about health more than anything, like health in my marriage, health in my relationship with my kids, certainly health in my finances, right? We're financial advisors, but also just my own physical, like fitness and health. And also just on my faith too, just being intentional about my relationship with God and volunteering, giving back and being generous, uh, intentional with my time and my money. Those are the things that really bring about the most joy for me is the ways that I'm able to be generous or my family's able to be generous. So yeah, I think it's multifaceted to me. I think if somebody's got a lot of wealth, but not a, not a healthy marriage, not a healthy relationship with their kids, like that's not the success I'm looking for. Like I want success in all those main areas. That, that And it would be seen as like healthy from someone on the outside looking in. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Tim, for joining us on the 
Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.